As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Global inequality is one of the biggest economic issues facing the world today. Global wealth is now thousands of times what it has been for the vast majority of human history, and yet a lot of that wealth has been hoarded by a smaller and smaller group of people. We were lucky enough to speak to Professor Francisco Ferreira from the London School of Economics, an expert on global inequality and its impacts on developing countries, which have the potential to be the economic powerhouses of the future. Hello everyone, we're here with Francisco Ferreira from the London School of Economics, and we've gone ahead and given him a really difficult uh, subject today, global inequality and inequality at all levels. It's one of those issues that everyone has an opinion on and it's difficult to say what's fair, what's right, and what's in the best interest of the economy on an individual, national, and by extension, even a global level. But certainly if there's anyone authorized or with the background to comment on it, uh, it's this man right here. So thank you. Thank you for coming on and giving us your time. Uh, Thank you for having me on the podcast, Michael. All right. I want to jump straight into it because it is something with a lot of angles here. And just from a a high-level perspective, our economy, you know, on on a global scale is tremendously wealthy today as compared to any other time in history that it's ever been. But we also have immense issues with income inequality and, by extension, wealth inequality. Do you think those are issues that are inextricably linked? Do you think those are things that one causes another? Or do you think there's a way to achieve the levels of wealth that we've had while controlling for for people that have become uh, extremely wealthy off it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, You know, the traditional economics view on the relationship between income growth and inequality was due to this famous American economist, Simon Kuznets, who gave rise to what people call the Kuznets curve, which was an inverted U-curve. The idea being that countries would start off being more equal and they would become increasingly unequal as some sectors or parts of the country took off first. You know, so the inequality would grow, but then eventually the backward areas or sectors would catch up and you would end up with less inequality again. 
And this was based a little bit on a, on a model of sort of, you know, rural to urban migration and development. And, and you can imagine the idea that a very rural society uh, would be more equal, then there would be a development of certain sectors, plantation, agriculture, industry, whatever. But then, you know, inequality would rise, but then eventually everybody would migrate and wages would go up and um, inequality would decline. This was the idea of the Kuznets curve, which was incredibly dominant. As a, as a view of the relationship between development and growth and inequality, on the other hand. Um, but it turns out that empirically, you know, when people have examined that in the data, they don't really find it for, for single countries. If you look at individual countries developing over time, there doesn't appear to be a lot of relationship between growth you know, and development on the one hand and inequality on the other, except for two things. And that is, if you look at the richest countries in the world, the really developed countries, they tend not to have very, very high levels of income inequality, not wealth, income inequality, compared to some of the middle-income countries, which are much more unequal, with one notable exception, and that is the United States, which is you know a genie of a bore 0.4 or so. But other countries are not. So what we interpret that to mean is that there is something about very, very high levels of inequality, which prevent successful development to the highest levels. Right. Now, I want to touch on that because I'm quite interested. Like, generally, the assumption that I've always had, which is as an economy grows wealthier, naturally, certain parts of that economy are going to grow wealthier first, and individuals are going to benefit from that you know, economic growth. I guess the most clear example in our lifetime has been China. It's gone from you know, a supposedly communist country, right? Where by design, you know, everyone has a, a certain level of equality to, to what it is today, which is, you know, only really communist in name, where we have, you know, extreme wealth, but still, uh, still extreme poverty. I mean, th- that seems like a pretty clear example of the Kuznets curve in action, or at least the first half of it. You're saying that, um, you know, it just never goes back down. It's it's just a, a Kuznets curve that only goes up and it only becomes more unequal or the whole sort of theory was? No, what I'm saying is it's just more complicated than that in the sense, for example, um, so the Chinese example that you've given is is actually one that looks like um, looks a bit like a Kuznets curve in that inequality rose a lot since the opening up of the economy to the market mechanism in 79, 1979, 1980. From there uh, on to the early 2000s, inequality did rise quite a lot in China. Then there's some evidence that it declined a bit. So it, it's almost like the beginnings of a, of a falling uh, section of the Kuznets curve, although it hasn't declined anywhere near as much as it had risen before. But then if you look at uh, the US or, or the UK in the famous uh, analysis that Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saiz have done of those countries, you know, you had big declines in the earlier part of the 20th century between the wars and after the Second World War until the 1950s and 60s, and then rising inequality again after the 1980s and rising very substantially in the case of the US, though it's important to highlight not everywhere. France, for example, doesn't have the same pattern, but the US and to some extent the UK have it. So it's hard to square that with the idea of the Kuznets curve because you know the Kuznets curve is just one inverted U. So how come over a whole century, we now got an actual U with inequality first falling and then rising? So some people like Branko Milanovic like to speak of, um, like to speak of Kuznets waves, you know, in which it's 
inequality may have cycles of going up and down, depending on what's happening to technology, to trade, to politics, to market power, to unions. I mean, there are many, many different forces at play. And it's hard to, you know, if you look, as I say, at the evolution of inequality within single countries, only a few would fit more or less the Kuznets pattern. China that you gave is a good example, but there's no guarantee it won't have another increase in inequality later, you know. Again, when you look at countries for which we have a longer time trend, a longer time series to look at, you see it going up and down in waves, as it were, in cycles. Yeah, maybe his uh, theory was a bit idealized to, to assume that a country only develops once. I mean, the UK, right, it's, it had the Industrial Revolution, but that was more than 200 years ago. And, you know, since it's gone through two world wars and decolonization, which is see a downwards pressure and then, you know, modernization. And um, so I, I suppose maybe it makes sense. Maybe the theory is, is still alive and well if we remove the assumption that a, a country only ever industrializes once. Do you think there's something to that or? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I think, I mean, you know, almost by definition, good theories have to be a little stylized because they're trying to capture some essential mechanisms and tear away the uh, all the detail, right? And in that sense, the Kuznets theory, which actually builds on, on earlier models by Arthur Lewis, the Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, and so on, these guys all had a very useful, interesting idea, which I think has something to it. But because the economy is complex, yeah, as you say, mechanisms may occur, you know, things can change over time, technology can go one way and then another. And so you might end up with these cycles, which are difficult to predict. Now, you mentioned the USA is sort of this outlier, which for, you know, advanced economy still has quite high levels of, of income inequality. And, and certainly it's a, it's a very big issue uh, in the US, both income and wealth. What do you think makes the US different? to, you know, let's say countries in Western Europe or, or Australia or, you know, sort of other advanced countries around the world? Why, why have they got a problem with it and no one else does? Mm, that's an excellent question. Uh, but before I go there, let me just say one final point on the issue we were discussing before, which I had meant to say, which I think, uh, you know, it's important that we just think about it a little bit. When I've been saying that inequality goes up and down uh, and, you know, the Kuznets hypothesis and all of that, that's really about the measures of inequality we normally use. Gini coefficient or others, but they are all relative. And what does that mean? They are about ratios, right? So if a poor person and a rich person, their incomes go up by 10%, inequality doesn't change. That's a relative concept of inequality. It's about percentages. You could also measure inequality in absolute terms, in absolute gaps. Not if a person's income go up by 10%, but if a person's income go up by $100, the rich person and the poor person, then inequality stays the same. When you look at it that way, absolute gaps rather than, you know, dollar gaps rather than percentage gaps, then inequality has been rising almost continuously throughout history. So that's, that's just for people to think about how, you know, how you measure things matters. And normal measures are relative. If you wanted to take a view of absolute inequality, that's been rising pretty much everywhere with growth. So let me go back now to your question about the U.S. as an outlier. So the U.S. is an outlier, but not in the sense that no one else in Western Europe has similar issues. I mean, as I said, the U.K. had substantial increases in inequality. So did Germany over certain periods. So has Sweden, who was a very egalitarian country, but income inequality has gone up there as well. Now, nowhere has it gone in the developed world anyway. Nowhere has it gone up as fast as in the United States. So why is that? Um, 
Uh, there are many factors driving inequalities increase in all of these countries. I think the ones that make the U.S. exceptional are, I mean, they, they play a role in many countries, but they, I think they play a particular role in the U.S. And uh, one is the sort of concentration of market power. So I, I like to call it sometimes the demise of competition. Other people refer to it as the rise of superstar firms. It's all about industries becoming less competitive as they become more concentrated and the market power in the hands of industry leaders. I mean, we can all think of the, the sort of obvious examples, uh, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, but it goes much beyond just those industries. There's really a documented tendency. People have written papers and books about this. Uh, there's been a documented tendency for our market economy, which is based on competition, to become less competitive as industries consolidate and there are fewer firms and those firms have more market power. And they have that market power in two ways often. They have it in pricing, meaning that their profits go up. So, you know, they have markups in prices. They also have more power in the labor market and they have markdowns in wages. So they have, a, they have a greater monopoly power in the product market and sometimes a greater monopsony power, as we call it, in the labor market, meaning that they can pay workers below what might be expected in a competitive labor market. So this issue of market power, I think, is a very big deal. It's not um, exclusive to the U.S. in any way, but the U.S. as a very large market has experienced more of that. And also, it has chosen to regulate it less. You know, interestingly, recently, President Biden is very aware of this. And his appointment of the head of the Federal Trade Commission was meant to, to combat that. He made an appointment. I forget the name of the lady now. But uh, he appointed a person to the Federal Trade Commission with the mandate to increase antitrust regulation to, to sort of prevent a large wave of mergers and acquisitions from exacerbating this market power issue. In other countries, uh, particularly in Europe, the regulators have been given a little more power than they had in the U.S., and they managed to block some of these big mergers and this big increase in, in market power. Now, there's another issue, but let me pause there for a moment just to see what you make of that, and then I can come back to the second issue. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very interested to see what the second issue is. And now, I'm just sort of, you know, sort of thinking out loud here, but the examples that you gave of, of companies like the classic ones, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, the big sort of, I guess, global tech companies. Now, they certainly do have a lot of, of market power in their, in their areas, but I'm also sort of thinking that a lot of the salaries that they offer their regular employees are kind of incredibly high by global standards, much higher than could be reasonably expected in, in the countries that maybe don't have the same issue with income inequality let's say, select ones in, in Western Europe and certainly uh, here in Australia. Do you think maybe that the other side of the equation, you know, the extremely high income earners also kind of skew these, these relative results as well? Sure. Although let me just say what you said may be true of the big tech giants like uh, Google and Microsoft, but it's certainly not true of some of the other companies I mentioned like Amazon whose labor force is, uh, is both enormous and very underpaid. And the same would be true of Walmart, for example, in the United States. So there are these giant firms that are very dominant in local product markets, which also pay very low wages. But yes, I think you're right. If you put that picture together, if you put the 
you know, the Amazon warehouse workers who fam were famously mistreated and don't get bathroom breaks and, and get paid very little. Uh, if you put them as well as the, the sort of casualized workforce in uh, large chains like Starbucks or, or whatever, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have the very highly paid, highly skilled workers at the top end of Google or, or Microsoft or, or Meta or what have you. Uh, then you do get this, this big increase in the, in the labor market inequality, right? Which is linked to a, a sort of third factor, which, which I wasn't going to mention now because I don't think it's as specific to the US, but it certainly a, has been a big driving force of rising inequality in, in rich countries and developed countries in general. And that is what people call occupational polarization. You know, the fact that automation and digitalization, so the leading edges of technological progress in the last uh, decade or two have been particularly good at replacing tasks and jobs and workers in the middle, so to speak, of the occupational distribution. People with relatively routine jobs, either cognitive or non-cognitive routine jobs, you know, robots will replace people with non-cognitive routine jobs, maybe in factories, for example, but computers will replace people with cognitive routine jobs like you know bank tellers now most banking is done digitally in the rich countries whereas before you know there used to be people in banks you'd go there and you'd speak to a person who would help you with your banking needs and that's that's declined because the technology has has basically replaced those people those people tended to be in the middle of the occupation and the income distribution and technical progress has a sort of hollowed out that middle which I think relates to your question about, you know, maybe the Google tech guys and the Amazon workers uh, on the other. It's part of this broader picture of hollowing of the occupational distribution and ways in which technology has been a driving force between rising labor inequality in, in many, many countries. I'd almost be interested to see what the, uh, the Gini coefficient for a company like Amazon would be from their lowest paid employee to, well, I suppose, on the extreme end there their CEO, which, which probably earns a, a lot of money. Um, so that, that's interesting. Now, you mentioned that you had uh, a second point about uh, the USA. I didn't mean to cut you off there, so I'll, I'll let you get to that. Well, it's, um, it was actually, um, in some sense, to do more of politics and how capture of the political process by elites affects policies like taxation, for example. So the, the US, you know, it has a progressive tax system, but it's much less progressive today. It taxes the rich relative to the poor much less today than it did in earlier periods throughout the 20th century, really. Again, there the are books by, by Emmanuel Saez and others looking at this decline in, in taxation at the very top, which is often not to do with labor taxation anymore. It has to do with taxation of capital incomes, dividends, and all, all sorts of um, interesting ways in which tax advisors can find ways for people not to pay tax on their capital incomes. Uh, this has been a bigger problem in the US than in many European countries, I think, in part because I think it does reflect the extent to which very large wealth in the United States has recaptured the political process. I think we cannot separate, we cannot be naive and separate economic inequality from political inequality. The fact that influence over the political system in the US does respond to campaign finance, does respond to large donations, uh, 
and other ways in which rich people influence politics are then manifest themselves in choices both on taxation and on regulation. I already mentioned earlier the U.S. has a more lax regulation in terms of market concentration and, and market power. So if you look at both the taxation and the regulation together, you get a picture in which there's a sort of vicious cycle between political inequality, inequality in political power, and economic inequality. TIAA is on a mission. Why? Because 54% of Black Americans don't have enough savings to retire. So in collaboration with big-name artists like Wyclef Jean, TIAA released Paper Right, new music inspiring a new financial future. With 100% of streaming sales going to a nonprofit that teaches students how to invest. Stream Paper Right now and help close the gap. Now, I want to get on to um, the reasons and the problems that can cause. But before I do, I want to play devil's advocate for a second here, which is, you know, we've compared the USA to, let's say, a country like France, you know, or Italy or a select group of, you know, advanced economies in in Europe, which are a bit more egalitarian and, and don't have the same issue with, with income inequality in particular. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, progressive income taxes and certainly the problem with taxing capital gains and other forms of income that are less direct. Now, someone that is championing the idea of deregulating and maybe even pushing for something like a flat tax would say, okay, yes, the USA has this. And yes, it does have problems with with income inequality, but it's also growing much faster than any of these other countries that are a bit more egalitarian. And they might be able to point to, to some of these big companies that are innovating and, and are world leaders in, in particular fields and uh, you know, are exporting not only you know, economic prosperity for, for the USA all over the world, but also influence. In that sense, do you think maybe it's something that's kind of worked to their advantage or, or maybe uh, at the very least a, a price that's worth paying to, to encourage this kind of innovation? So I think, first of all, we have to be very careful with the facts that underpin the debate here. So when you say that the U.S. is growing much faster than most places in Europe, I think, you know, I'd have to actually check, but I think it is true of the last, um, certainly true since the pandemic, the U.S. has recovered faster than anywhere else, possibly through this century. My recollection is it was not true of the bulk of the 20th century, for example, when total factor productivity growth was similar between the United States and Europe. Not all of Europe, but actually the more egalitarian Europe Germany, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia had GDP growth and productivity growth that were growth rates that were comparable to the US. I, I would have to go and check the, the facts, but that's my recollection from the 20th century. There was at the aggregate level no equity efficiency trade-off between the more highly taxing countries in, say, Scandinavia and Northern Europe and the United States in the bulk of the 20th century. I think I can say that relatively confidently. It may no longer be true today. We would have to check. And some of that may have to do with the high-tech revolution with, with sort of digital economy and the giants that you mentioned. So that's, you know, there's a, li- there's a little bit of fact-checking we would have to make and your listeners will have to make before jumping to, to conclusions. But let's take at face value what you're arguing for the current decade or so in which the U.S. may have been growing faster. The question is, is it necessary to have quite such a large difference in school quality between private schools in Manhattan 
and public schools in rural Alabama or Louisiana or Mississippi, where you've got, you know, kids that are going to go to these very bad schools and drop out of them and not make it to college and whose wages will be low. And, you know, median wages in the United States have not risen for God knows how long now. I mean, many decades. So you've got a completely stagnant bottom of the labor market up to the middle of the labor market while you've got the top taking off quite so fast. Is it necessary to have that happening at the bottom in order to have these incentives for uh, for technological innovation and progress uh, in the tech industry in California? You know, do we need to have that much inequality and particularly inequality at the bottom that becomes an equality of opportunity and deprives people? of the ability of being as productive as their fellow citizen? And I, I think the answer is no. I, I think that's a political choice. And you could have huge incentives to innovation while still being able to, to finance and afford reasonable standards for the bulk of your population, particularly when you are a country as rich as the U.S. That's an interesting insight. And, and certainly you'll encourage people to go and, and look at the figures. Uh, you know, Europe, I think, has been hindered, certainly in the last decade was hit particularly hard by the GFC and then the Eurozone crisis and, and certainly the pandemic, as you said, it has recovered slowly. So that may be uh, external factors that, that influence the outcome more than inequality that could be totally unrelated. But I think it's still worth, worth addressing because I wanted to go a little bit, little bit crazy in it, you know, and as a, as a thought experiment, sort of look to the future. Now, we have a running joke on the channel that nobody can predict the future, least of all economists, but uh, but everyone still asks us to do it, so I, I suppose we got we got to play ball. Um, you know, if, if we take a you know a hypothetical, you know, it's the years twenty one hundred, and um, you know we're a multiplanetary species, and you know growth has continued, and everything's sort of fantastic. I'm sort of looking at a, a reality where the capacity for extraordinary wealth accumulation has increased because the economy is just that much larger. Uh, you know, someone could be a, a tycoon of interplanetary shipping lanes and have private spaceships and and things like that. And there's still the capacity for someone to just be a regular person down here on earth with a regular size house working a regular job. And in that sort of instance, inequality has increased drastically because the top end of town has become so much wealthier. And likewise, if we look backwards, if we look back to feudal times, inequality was lower because most people were, you know, working on farms in, in agrarian roles and sure there was nobility, but but even back then, you know, the average lifestyle of a of a king or a queen is is probably less wealthy than the luxuries that we enjoy today. Do you think it's sort of almost a, a natural byproduct of, of growth that as we get wealthier, just there's just naturally going to be people that have a, you know, even if it's the same share of the wealth, but that wealth is just going to be so much greater than, than the average person. I think that goes back to the slightly technical point I made earlier, but which I, think, which I think is important, which is the difference between relative and absolute gaps. I think it is true, as I said before, that absolute gaps, just dollar gaps between uh, the income of the rich and the poor and the wealth in the rich and the poor rise more or less inexorably with growth. And would be higher in your hypothetical multiplanetary society in 2100 uh, than it is today. And it is higher today than it was in uh, the Middle Ages uh, in Europe. However, relative inequality, you know, the things that we measure by the Gini coefficient and so on, or, or shares of 
the top 1%, which people use nowadays, which is also a relative measure because it's a share. Those things, it is not clear that they rise with growth. It's not clear that they are higher today than they were in the Middle Ages. You know, people have studied inequality from historical records and, you know, amazing uh, sort of findings of of social tables and, and old records from historical institutions. People have studied now inequality in the Byzantine Empire, in the Roman Empire, in the Middle Ages, and they find incredibly high levels of inequality because uh, the king may not have had uh, computers, but the king had uh, almost everything and and workers had uh, extremely little. And so in terms of shares, actually inequality was higher in some of those empires and in some colonial societies as well than they are today. So, you know, it's again, I think your, your scenario, you know, you, you'd have to reflect about absolute differences versus relative differences. Absolute differences almost inevitably will continue to rise with productivity growth, but relative don't have to and haven't historically. Yeah, that's, that's a, an interesting insight because the point that I wanted to get out of that was, is it worth having? And I know it doesn't necessarily need to, to happen this way, but is it worth having the, the bottom? let's say 50% of humanity have their incomes increase $1,000 a month, let's say, um, if it means that the top 1% has their incomes uh, increase $100,000. So, the, you know, everyone generally is getting wealthier, even if uh, the majority has gone to the top. So relatively, yeah. uh, obviously, the, the gap has grown, but it's meant that, you know, the, the bottom half still, still is enjoying a better life. Well, that's the sort of classic question that has animated the economics profession about inequality for a very long time. You know, I think basically you're asking if there's progress in reducing poverty and bringing up the bottom of the distribution, should we care about inequality at all? In particular, should we care about inequality at the top at all? You know, economists have widely differing views on this and they have changed over time. When I went to graduate school a few decades ago, the answer was everyone would give you the answer more or less. No, you shouldn't care about inequality. Uh, if poverty is falling, you know, things are okay. And that may well be, I mean, my own take, this becomes normative, right? This becomes an issue of, of values and choices, and, and it's no longer a positive question. It's a normative question. It's a, it's a should or ought question rather than an is question. My own view is very close to that of the philosopher John Rawls, who, who said, look, what we ought to do is design things in society so that we choose the path that brings the bottom of the distribution up the fastest. He didn't say it exactly in those terms, but he did say inequalities should be tolerated to the extent that they benefit the worst off. So basically, we want, you know, we will tolerate inequality if the best way to get progress at the bottom is to have some very rich people be rewarded for the progress that they bring to society, then that is what we should do. But only if it is bringing the bottom up. You know, that's the Rawlsian view. Many people have adopted it in the theory of inequality, of equality of opportunity and other, um, other approaches to, to what's fairness. Uh, and I very much believe that the fairness we should pursue is that. We should arrange things so that society benefits the poorest, the better. Now, then it becomes an empirical question. How much income inequality is consistent with that? And as, I, as I've tried to suggest, um, I think not an enormous amount. I mean, I think if you look, for example, at the United States, which is, uh, you know, a great example of a dynamic economy with a lot of liberty for the rich to grow rich, 
we know there have been declines in poverty, but we know that, you know, as I said, the labor incomes, the wages of the bottom of the distribution have barely changed and for some percentiles has fallen over the last 50 years or so. And the same is true of, of many other countries. So, so, you know, you, I believe, as I think many people believe, that it's possible to combine the incentives and the technology of the market economy with systems of social protection and investment in human capital and education and health and so on that will bring the, um, the bottom of the distribution up faster. So I'm, I'm basically trying, you know, your question is, is a very good one. And I, and I am on the one hand agreeing that really the objective should be in bringing the bottom of the distribution up, but cautioning that I don't think that is consistent with very, very high levels of income inequality. And I think it's really relevant to the solutions to, to inequality. And ultimately, there are ways to do that. And tax is, is the big one, of course, right? Taking the wealth or taking the income of extremely uh, wealthy people or extremely high income earners and using that to, to reinvest into social programs or programs that will stimulate industry to give opportunities to people at the lower percentiles. Now, I think you're probably in alignment with with most people, which is that you know obviously the focus should be on lifting people up. But most of these policies, I think it's it's easy to see how people say that we're solving income inequality by just pushing down the people at the very top. We're putting a, a wealth tax on them, or we're you know introducing a an, an income tax rate of a very very high percentage beyond an extreme amount. All proposals that have been made particularly in the USA, where you know, it, it's a, a very political issue in amongst a, a social and economic issue. Do you think there's, there's merit to those, or do you think it's just to win political brownie points, or, uh, or do you think there's a, a more productive way to, do, uh, to achieve the same result? I think you're onto something. I think you have a point if you suggest that some of the recent debate on taxation almost sounds vindictive, right? It almost sounds like it's about bringing the income of the top down. I am interested in taxation only insofar as it generates resources for the government to spend it on the poor and not necessarily as handouts, although I think social protection and and transfers and things like family benefits or unemployment insurance or earned income tax credit, you know, it takes different forms in different countries. Those are very important. But even more important is investing in the opportunities of the poor, is investing in education, in high quality health in professional training, in all kinds of infrastructure that people use in in many countries, including my own in Brazil. If you aren't rich enough, you can't live in the central neighborhoods of Sao Paulo. You live out in the periphery. And if you live out in the periphery, it can take, because of the transport infrastructure, two and a half hours to get to your job. That's an enormous cost to a functioning labor market right there. It's both inequitable and inefficient. And the solution to it is massive investment in uh, high-quality public transport, mostly rail-based and possibly underground, which is expensive. Uh, but other cities, in richer cities have done it. You know, my city of Sao Paulo could do it. It doesn't do it because it chooses to tax and spend in different ways. So you know, I'm absolutely with you that the main point of taxation is not to make rich people poorer, although sometimes in the current debate you'd get that impression. The main point of taxation is to ask for the resources that are needed for investing in the poor from those with the broadest shoulders from those who can afford best to do it. But then it's very important how we spend that money. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a fantastic example. You know, that's um, 
certainly not by any means a, a handout, but it's uh, you know making it possible for these people to be productive members of of an economy, you know, be able to get to work without spending half of their life traveling. I think that's a fantastic example. I might <laughs> I might use that in one of my uh, videos. So thank you for that. I'll be I'll be sure to credit you. Now, <laughs> there's the other part to this, which is the habits of the extremely rich, and it certainly it attracts a lot of criticism. And I want to talk about uh, that. And I interviewed earlier this month Jason Perman, uh, who is also an economics professor at Harvard. And I, I presented them the same question. I'd be interesting for your perspective on it, which is ultimately uh, for the extremely rich, there's two things that they can do with their with their money: they can spend it on consumption, or they can they can reinvest it. Now, if they spend it on consumption, you know, it's, uh, super yachts or mansions or private jets and things like that. And often as outside observers, we see that as something that is, is good for the economy. You know, it's, you know, sure, they're kind of spending their money, but they're spending it and it's creating jobs, creating opportunities. And ultimately, because it's consumption, those, those assets, if you call them that, depreciate in an indirect way. It's, it's kind of reducing uh, wealth inequality because they're, in effect, wasting their money. Now, that's, that's great. But it's also tying up resources, and in effect, you know, the bottom line is that economics is about distributing the world's limited resources to eight billion people. It's also taking those resources and putting it into something that is ultimately for leisure and you know opulence. And those resources, while they have provided jobs and opportunities to other people, have kind of then been wasted once they've been put into a a yacht. You know, it might have fifty years before it eventually sinks and is scrapped, and it's, it becomes useful to nobody. Whereas the alternative would be for them to, to take their money and invest it. Now, if they invest it, the expectation is that it would continue to, to grow in value and probably produce more income than, than you or I or any member of the, uh, the, the, the normal uh, population could ever hope to achieve. And that increases inequality, but it's also put those resources towards something that is also going to create jobs and opportunities and is going to grow the wealth of the economy. So one is causing wealth inequality to grow, one is causing it to shrink, but which one do you think is really the better outcome there? That's a very interesting way of, of putting the question. You know, the, the, the traditional answer that comes back from, you know, the Max Weber's Protestant ethic is the idea that we should be okay with the rich because they save and invest. So the justification often given, uh, going back again to Nicholas Caldor in economics, was, well... The rich tend to save more of their income because they can afford it. They are able to meet their needs with very small share of their income. So they save the rest and invest. And that's, that's okay. We want more investment because investment creates jobs and creates uh, more income and output down the, uh, down the line. But you are right also that in the absence of taxation and intervention, it contributes to greater wealth inequality, right? Because if the rich save more than the poor, then their assets grow at a faster rate and wealth inequality rises. This is in essence, I mean, this is in essence really Marx and Schumpeter, but it's also what Piketty has come back to. So should we want them to uh, spend in yachts or should we want them to invest and therefore create more jobs, but also more wealth inequality? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we should uh, tax a bit of both, <laughs> tax a bit of conspicuous consumption. There's one thing about consumption by the rich, which I want to mention, and that is, you know, there's quite serious evidence in economics, as you probably know, that uh, there is something called the relative income hypothesis, right, which is quite strongly supported. And that is that actually we are 
social animals. And if we see other people doing much better than us, we feel worse. Some people criticize that and say that's not an acceptable argument because it's largely about envy. But whether it is envy or not, there's a lot of evidence out there in economics papers nowadays that people care about what other people consume. You know, Robert Frank at Cornell writes about positional goods and and how, you know, if everybody else's house is bigger, you feel less good about your house, even though it hasn't changed size. There's a lot of that for certain goods, for cars, for houses, for yachts, for whatever. So actually, there is a negative externality from these people consuming very large things, particularly in a highly integrated world where we see them on social media or TV or the internet all the time. Um, how much value you place on that is, is up to you. But uh, the evidence suggests there is a negative externality from conspicuous consumption. So th- this is uh, one thing to, to bear in mind. The other thing on investment is, you know, I don't think we should tax all capital incomes at all. But I think we know now that some capital incomes can be taxed in order to finance investment by the public sector. So to go back to the example that you liked earlier, one of the ways of investing in a suitable underground transport system in Sao Paulo would be to tax the capital incomes of some of Brazil's richest people, some of it, not all. They would continue to do what they're doing but their wealth would grow less fast. And we would use this to increase public wealth, to increase the sort of public assets in society, which are owned by the state. Uh, you know, one of uh, the points that Thomas Piketty and co-authors have been making a great very often is actually that public wealth has been declining whilst private wealth has been rising. This is about the extent to which public assets have not been invested in, in many countries. So it's a balance, again, between the two. But I would be cautious, just to come down on one side, I would be cautious about supporting the idea of, uh, oh, let them consume a lot of money and buy very big yachts because at least that's not increasing their wealth and equality. I think it's actually creating negative externalities for people to see that. And we could avoid the, uh, the growth in wealth inequality through capital taxes. No, it's an interesting point. And I think it can't be completely discounted, although it, it is very easy to do so, because at the end of the day, Economics is a social science, right? It's about you know producing positive outcomes, which is making people satisfied uh, with the resources that we have available. So, you know, if there's a way to to increase satisfaction without necessarily uh, increasing the consumption of resources, that's something that should be taken quite seriously. Now, one other thing, you know, there's I suppose one other big uh, way that the extremely wealthy, which has become increasingly popular, can spend their money, which is on charity. Now, it's hard to criticize charity without sounding like uh, a bit of a Grinch, but it is something that is worth sort of investigating in this, in this discussion because, you know, on one hand, it's fantastic that these people are putting, you know, in some cases, billions of dollars towards causes that are improving the lives of a lot of people. On the other hand, this is all tax deductible. So really, they're denying the nations that, um, that they're from, the ability to decide where you know, their revenues go and, and they're sort of de-democratizing the process of picking what, what ventures are worthy to invest in and what are not. Do you have any you know, strong opinions on, on this sort of explosion in, in, in global philanthropy or, or do you think it's just one of those things that it's worthwhile doing even if it does come at the expense of tax dollars or do you think you know, maybe it should be tax deductible at all? Uh, yeah, I think, I think the latter. I think that 
we shouldn't discourage philanthropy or charity. I think philanthropy and charity are on the whole good things. And to go back to our yacht example, I'd rather somebody made a big donation to a university than bought a yacht with it in terms of value for the world. However, I don't think it should be tax deductible because the tax dollars could be spent in that public school in Alabama that I mentioned, or, you know, the schools in the developing world uh, from the hinterlands of Zambia to Brazil or to uh, India, uh, where, you know, there is a lot of investment that's needed to provide basic opportunities for children. And yet, where will the philanthropy go, right? The philanthropy, to stay in the sector that I work in, which is higher education, philanthropy goes disproportionately to the best universities, the richest universities already. And that is because it's their alumni who is giving it them that money. So in, the, in some sense, that's uh, actually going to increase future inequality, uh, right? So my position is better to do that than to buy a yacht. Uh, you know, let's encourage philanthropy, but let's not make it tax deductible. That should not come at the expense of public investment in the low quality public school in Alabama that nobody's donating money to. So, you know, we should not make any philanthropy uh, tax deductible is my, is my view. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, um, I suppose a relatively controversial opinion, but um, it is worth bringing up. And I'm, I'm kind of glad you took that view because I, I think I'm on your side, you know, on one hand, you know, charity is great, but um, the, the part that got me is even if they are donating to let's say worthy causes, and I don't think, you know, let's say, the the endowment of of Sydney University or the London School of Economics or Harvard University is is necessarily a needy cause by any means, um, but even if they are putting it towards you know let's say b- building schools in in impoverished countries, you know it's not a democratic process of of deciding it. Whereas you know tax dollars are you don't really get to decide where your where your tax dollars are spent. It's, it's put to, to where you know the people decide. So th- there is a lot to it. Now I, I want to wrap it up with. One final question, which is that so far we've looked at this on a very sort of country by country basis, the US and China in isolation and and their relative inequality within their countries. But I want to expand it. And the issue of inequality is, is often looked at in this context because if there's opportunities in countries like the USA to earn extremely high incomes and pay lower taxes and and make millions of dollars. It's a very attractive prospect for extremely highly skilled workers in places like Western Europe or the developing world uh, to move there. Do you see that continuing to, to make a sort of situation where it's almost like a race to the bottom to attract skilled talent by offering uh, better high-end positions with lower taxes, maybe even at the expense of, of the rest of their workforce because they know in the future it's those kinds of people that are going to make the difference between economic growth and, and stagnation. So you're asking basically about international migration, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Brain drain and uh, you know, the attractiveness of, of opportunities and, yeah. and I suppose uh, capital flight in a, in a sense as well. Yeah. So you, know, you also mentioned uh, people coming from uh, Western Europe to the, to the United States uh, uh, to work in very top jobs and so on. Those things worry me less. But what has been happening in the last... 20 to 30 years is a very big increase in unskilled migration from the developing world to the rich world, which had always existed, but has accelerated. 
I saw numbers the other day, and I won't remember the exact numbers, but I saw numbers on the share of foreign-born population in European countries in the U.S., reaching a very high watermark that was never uh, reached before. So again, I, you know, that number varies dramatically across countries, but it's basically been increasing fairly steadily. So the share of the population in, in rich countries that is foreign-born is still obviously a minority, but it is much larger than it used to be. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? There are lots of debate about that amongst economists too. I tend to side uh, in principle with those who say, you know, uh, my former colleague, Lant Pritchett, who, who is uh, now at Oxford, but we used to be at the World Bank together, uh, has a book on, uh, you know, let the people come, basically saying that one of the most effective ways of promoting development is actually to have uh, workers from the developing world work where they are more productive, and they may be more productive in rich countries, and then send the money back through remittances and so on. So there's always that positive story, okay? And I'm a migrant myself. I'm Brazilian, and I live in the, in the UK where I work. So it's hard for me to be against migration. I think there's much to commend international migration. That said, we would be naive again, as you said, economics is a social science, and we would be naive if we were to ignore the fact that there are massive political repercussions. So the extent to which the backlash with the right of far-right wing parties in Europe and the conversion of the Republican Party in the United States into a far-right party, those things are related to migration. Now, you know, standards of causal identification in political science are not quite yet what they are in economics. It's hard to do. I don't know that it's been fully proven anywhere, but there is a very strong suspicion. And I think the balance of opinion is that when you see increases in migration, as we've seen um, in Europe recently, this acts as a fuel for the far right. Okay. And so that backlash has to be factored in. It has to be factored into how we deal with migration because we don't want the world to revert to a sort of pre-World War II situation with very authoritarian far-right leaders. And I don't think we should kid ourselves that large-scale international migration is unrelated to that. Um, and I think it's something that we should bear in mind. And by the way, whilst we're on that, let me go back to your scenario of the 2100, the year 2100 with the interstellar uh, society with people doing quite well on Earth. And, and offer you an alternative. Um, I used to work on Africa. I was briefly chief economist for the Africa region at the World Bank. And at that time, I came across a population forecast by the United Nations uh, that said that the population for Africa in 2100, population for Africa today is just over 1 billion people. I forget exactly how much, but a billion something. In 2100, it was forecast to reach 5 billion. Okay. So you can have scenarios under which there's massive economic growth and productivity growth, and these 5 billion people are doing like the Chinese, and they're all doing quite well. It's also easy to imagine scenarios in which Africa continues to develop more or less as it has been developing, but having 5 billion people, it remains a very poor, but now a very large place separated from Europe by the Mediterranean, and with climate change, okay, which make the Sahel unlivable, expands the Sahara creates all kinds of issues in Africa that make it worse. And it, it's quite easy to, to paint a much more dystopian view of 2100, just on the basis of demographics. You said economists are, are bad at predicting the future, and that's absolutely true. Demographers are a little better. They get it wrong too, but they get it wrong by less because you know fertility and mortality are more predictable. 
So the issue of international migration is not going to go away. It's going to keep rising. And it could be wonderful if we migrants were absolutely welcomed with open arms into the societies in the North. That is not the case, unfortunately. And it's not the case partially because of average median people in these countries. It's not the very rich who are opposed to migration. Often it's the opposite. It's local people who fear for their jobs or for the way their culture works or for the priorities of their own governments. And that is a first order problem to face. You know, to some extent, maybe Australia and New Zealand, but you guys are, um, you guys have geography on your side a little bit. But North America and Europe are going to struggle with this. And it's going to be, I think, one of the defining political issues of the next few decades. Certainly. And, and, and to be clear, I, I, I don't think uh, Australia or New Zealand are, are innocent of it uh, at all. We had a, a sort of a, a political thing, uh, not so big anymore, but um, sort of in the last decade, very similar to sort of build the wall, but, you know, ours was stop the boats. Same sort of thing. Obviously, we have a, only on our sort of northern border, the, the ocean asylum seekers would come to us by boats. So, yeah, no, certainly uh, for clarity, we're not innocent of that either. Um, now, I did say um, that was my last question. I lied because I want to get your opinion on one last thing. Uh, with migration, I mean, there's also the aspect that the, the people leaving these countries, these, these workers that are going to you know, provide their labor, especially if they're leaving at a young age, can accelerate problems like aging populations or worker productivity. Use you as an example, obviously, uh, a, a brilliant guy. You, know, you provided a lot of value to, um, to, to the economy. but you know, potentially that could have been provided to the economy of Brazil, you know, uh, poorer on a per capita level than the UK. Do you see a future where more and more countries start to adopt a, a taxation system sort of like the US, where even if you leave the country, you still pay taxes back to, to your home country as a way to, to increase revenues from basically these, these migrants uh, they're, they're sending abroad? Do you think that'd be uh, you know, a positive thing? Um, you know, if, if let's say uh, someone such as yourself, you know, could go and get a, a nice, you know, high-paying job at a prestigious university in the UK, and then pay some of your taxes back to to Brazil, that they could then use to to reinvest into their own economy, or do you think it's just sort of not feasible, and only the US can get away with it? Uh, that's a really interesting question. First, I'm not sure at all that I contribute much to the UK, but but in any case, it's certainly true that I could have worked in Brazil and. I did for a while, and in in a real sense, it would actually be a really good idea to pay some of my taxes in Brazil. I think the issue is that unless the receiving countries were prepared to sign these tax treaties that prevent double taxation. So, so for example, suppose the UK were to agree that I should pay the Brazilian tax rates, I should pay on my income to Brazil, and then the difference... I should pay to the UK. Then I think that would be a great solution. And that would be something that, you know, could even be discussed in terms of the aid architecture. Perhaps the rich countries could say, well, part of our contribution in aid is going to be to agree to this, that migrants pay the tax rates in their countries to their origin countries. And then the net effect, because taxes are typically higher in, in richer countries, any net difference they will pay in rich countries. That would, that's a, you know, that's actually a, a really interesting Idea. I think I think it works. I think it works the other way around. I could be wrong. I'm, I'm you know Australian. And I've always worked and sort of lived in Australia, so I could, I could be wrong. But I believe it works the other way around in the US. So if a US citizen moves to Australia, they pay Australian taxes first, which let's say taps out at about forty five percent, and then they'd pay American taxes on 
the sort of fifty-five percent that they have left. I don't mind a detail, but I, I no, think, no, no, no. That's a, that's, important. that's the way. That's an important issue. I was just discussing. So, what a majority of the a majority of the benefit still goes to the. So, if a host country like let's say Australia is not right. really losing out on anything, still getting all of the the revenue that they would from a regular worker from from any other country that doesn't have that treaty or, or whatever. So, I think that makes it a little bit more palatable to let's say a country like the UK. Well, yeah, but if that were to happen between say. Europe or the United States on the one hand and countries in Latin America, there would be nothing left. Because after you pay your taxes in the UK or the US, that's more than you would have paid at home. So the way the US system works depends on, on there being some tax left over to pay back. And if you did it the way you're describing, which I'm sure you're right, is how the system currently works, I'm not sure it would work for developing countries in that way. And if it were that we have to pay taxes in both places fully, then I think that would be a massive discouragement right, to migration. And if you really thought brain drain was a very significant problem and it was worth cutting down on all the remittances you get, then perhaps you should pursue that. But don't forget that there are med- benefits from migration. Right? There may be a cost to brain drain, but there are big benefits in terms of remittances. And so you'd have to weigh that out. But, you know, between the the systems that we were discussing, so where you pay taxes first or some combination of the tax rates, I understand that what I was describing is not how it's done, but it's an idea that could be discussed as part of the sort of international migration architecture. And that I think would be be interesting, but it would almost inevitably, in the way I understand it at least, would almost inevitably entail some loss of tax revenue to rich countries. Because as I say, if I paid all my taxes in the UK, there would be no additional tax that I would pay in Brazil, you know, in terms of the Brazilian tax rates. You'd have to come on top. You you, you would certainly pay a fair bit more. Um, and for clarity, I, again, I think I'm getting this right. But let's say um, a US citizen moves to Australia and they make $100,000. And then the tax rate on that would be here in Australia, probably about 30%. So they're left with $70,000. They would then, the US government would then look at that and be like, hey, you just made $70,000. We're going to tax you on whatever that is. I believe 70,000 Australian dollars is roughly sort of 50,000 American dollars. The tax rate on that's probably 20%. So they'd probably pay an extra $10,000, $15,000. And after all is said and done, they'd be left with about 50%, which is yeah. a lot to pay on 100,000 Australian dollars. Yeah. Um, but if you're coming from, let's say, a country like Brazil, you might do the math and say, hey, you know, I'm yeah. going to pay a lot of tax, but my income opportunity is still better in the USA than it is here where, where incomes are lower. But yeah, I, th- I think it's um, obviously the details are, uh, <laughs> you know, we're not making policy on the fly here, but... Um, yeah, 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 the details would matter, uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. But I think um, it, it's an interesting insight that it, it, it could be something that works, you know, if it didn't come at the expense of, of other important aspects. Mm. Francisco, thank you so much for uh, your time and answering all of my questions. I know we went uh, a little bit off topic there, but I, I hope it was as interesting for everyone listening and yourself as it was for me. Uh, I really did appreciate your insights. Yeah, no, very interesting. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed it and thanks for having me. Likewise.